This is Matthew Craig Kelly, host of The Looking Glass. The Looking Glass is an unusual podcast, a hybrid of true crime and history. While there are many journalists, amateur historians, and true crime enthusiasts producing excellent podcasts these days, this one is different. I am a historian by training and a criminal investigator by profession. I aim to bring this expertise and experience to bear on the crimes we will be investigating and hope to offer listeners valuable insights along the way. With a bit of luck, we may even solve a murder or two. And with that, let me welcome you to The Looking Glass. And the wheel of destiny has turned. The survival of peace and freedom will be determined by whether the American people have the moral standard. <laughs> The great silent majority. Castle. Drive. <laughs> Dustin Morgan composed the music and sound design for this episode. Our cast features Chad Danella as Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, Shano Alexander as Specialist Kenneth Micah, and Michael Hensley as Sergeant Richard Tiver. You can follow us on Facebook at The Looking Glass True Crime Podcast and on Instagram at the Looking Glass underscore podcast. We will be posting season one related documents, photographs, and short essays regularly at both of these accounts. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends. We appreciate your support. Each season of The Looking Glass will examine one crime. The inaugural season will take up the case of the Jeffrey McDonald murders, which have also been referred to as the Green Beret and Fatal Vision murders. Jeffrey McDonald was, as many who knew him have said, the all-American boy, a mother's and mother-in-law's dream. One of three children, he grew up in a working-class neighborhood of Long Island and seemed, from his earliest days, destined to transcend his humble origins. In high school, he was both captain of the football team and class president, His peers voted him most popular and most likely to succeed. He was handsome, athletic, and kind. He was also bright and by some accounts brilliant. Princeton University offered him a scholarship, in fact, and MacDonald leapt at the opportunity. No one knew quite where young Jeffrey was headed, but it seemed obvious that it was toward success and accomplishment of some high order. From a young age, Jeffrey had a magnetic effect upon women. He reportedly lost his virginity when he was only 14, to the mother of one of his friends. The girls his own age adored him as well, but one in particular seemed to effortlessly play upon something deep in Jeffrey's psyche. She was gentle and soft-spoken, but also, in her way, strong and quite intelligent. Her name was Colette Stevens. She and Jeffrey first met in junior high school. The two would fall in love in high school and date on and off. Colette would print in her notebooks, over and over and over again, in all caps, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. Even during periods when the two were romantically estranged, Jeffrey would turn up at Colette's house and offer to mow the lawn for her mother, Mildred, and stepfather, Freddie. Mildred and Freddie adored Jeffrey, naturally. The pair, and Colette too, had endured more than their share of sorrow. Prior to having Colette in 1943, Mildred had given birth to three daughters, all of whom she'd named Colette. Two were stillborn. The third lived, but then died after only a few weeks. 
It was enough trauma for a lifetime, but there was more to come. When Colette was 12 years old, on a spring evening in 1955, Mildred opened her garage door to the strange sight of her husband's bathrobe dangling from the rafters, only to realize, suddenly, uncomprehendingly, that he was in it. He had hung himself, for reasons Mildred would never know. He had left no note. As for Freddy, his wife and baby girl had been killed in a German bombing raid on London in the Second World War, during which Freddy served in the Canadian Army as an intelligence officer on the European mainland. After such tremendous difficulties, Mildred and Freddy felt fortunate to have found each other, and they were likewise grateful that the daughter they so loved was the object of the affections of such a remarkable young man as Jeffrey MacDonald. Not long after Jeffrey began his studies at Princeton, he and Colette reconnected and began dating again, and then Colette got pregnant. It had been an accident, and Mildred and Freddie were not thrilled at the news, but they supported the young couple's plan to keep the baby and to marry, which Colette and Jeffrey did that September of 1963 in Greenwich Village. In the coming years, Jeffrey would leave Princeton to attend the medical school at Northwestern University in Chicago, and then join the Green Berets as a group surgeon. The year was 1969, and Jeffrey was now Dr. and Captain McDonald, living with his beautiful, pregnant wife and their two young daughters, Kimberly, age five, and Kristen, two, on the Fort Bragg military base in Cumberland County, North Carolina. By all contemporaneous accounts, family life for the McDonald's was a Norman Rockwell painting come to life. Colette, with her dashing Green Beret husband and delightful young daughters, was the envy of many. The McDonald's seemed to have it all, what happened next is a mystery that this season of The Looking Glass will attempt to unravel. Around 3.40 a.m. on February 17, 1970, an emergency call came into the Carolina Telephone Company switchboard. An operator picked up the line, but there was only silence. She alerted her supervisor, Group Chief Operator Carolyn Landon, who checked the line and attempted to solicit some response from the caller, with no success. The call had originated from the Fort Bragg military base, so the operator immediately patched it through to the military police. After a few moments, a faint voice came on the line. Five, four, five, four, four, castle, drive, stabbed. A man seemed to whisper, and then, still faintly, but clearly, 544 Castle Drive. 544 Castle Drive. 544 Castle Drive. M.P. Joseph Polk, a first lieutenant with the C Company of the 503rd Military Police Battalion on Fort Bragg, was in the operations division of the Provost Marshal Office, rewriting his duty officer's log to make it more legible, when his driver entered the room and said there was someone on the line. A strange call. Polk walked over to the military police desk and picked up one of the phones. The operator read off an address and indicated that a domestic disturbance was in progress. Polk exited the building, hopped in his patrol car, and headed straight to 544 Castle Drive. It was a short trip, and Polk arrived moments later, exiting his vehicle and approaching the front door of the building. He knocked a few times, but received no answer. He then began pounding, 
but still no answer. He would need a search warrant to enter the premises, so he began walking back to his patrol car. Suddenly, one of his men called out to him. Several of the MPs had gone around to the back of the residence and discovered that the back door was open. The screen door was closed, but it was unlocked. Sergeant Richard Tiver made his way inside, walking gingerly through a small utility room and into the master bedroom, where he noticed the bodies of a man and a woman lying limp on the floor. He immediately ran back out and shouted, We need to get some men back here. Someone's been stabbed. Tiver then returned to the bedroom, this time with his pistol drawn and two MPs in tow. He slowly approached the man on the floor, who appeared to be conscious. The man's head was resting on the woman's left shoulder. MP Kenneth Micah knelt down beside him, touching his face. Check my kids. I heard my kids crying, the man whispered. He also instructed the MPs to feel for a pulse on his wife's leg. Micah leapt to his feet and rushed out into the hallway, which ran from the master bedroom through the center of the apartment, opening at the other end onto a small living room and kitchen. Micah hurried down the hallway and glanced briefly into the living room. A light was on in the kitchen. It cast a dim glow over the adjoining living room, where, apart from a coffee table and potted plant that were laying on their sides, Nothing seemed to be out of place. He then walked back down the hall in the direction of the master bedroom, stopping at the open doors of the two children's bedrooms, which were located on either side of the hall. Micah drew the beam of his flashlight across one of the darkened rooms and then the other, and could make out, in each, the body of a young child lying motionless on a bed, partially covered by a comforter. The 23-year-old MP then continued back to the master bedroom, He knelt beside McDonald. What happened here? He asked. The army captain appeared to be in shock. He mumbled, There were four. Acid is groovy. Acid is groovy. I can't breathe. I need a chest tube. Micah, like the other MPs, was green, inexperienced. He didn't know what a chest tube was, but he had learned how to administer mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and as McDonald passed out, Micah placed his lips to the captain's and attempted to revive him. McDonald reawakened, panicked. My kids! My kids! And Micah restrained him, assuring McDonald that the other MPs were with his children, only for the captain to pass out again. This cycle repeated at least three times before the medics arrived, hoisted McDonald onto a stretcher, and carried him out the front door and into a waiting ambulance. Micah's reassuring words regarding McDonald's two young daughters were false. Both children were dead. Kimberly had been viciously struck in the head and face. Her little skull was misshapen, and she had sustained multiple stab wounds. Her two-year-old sister, Kristen, had been stabbed four times in the chest, once in the neck, and 12 times in the back. McDonald's wife, Colette, had been stabbed 37 times and beaten severely. Her right wrist and left arm were broken, and she had been struck, apparently with an object, about her head and face. There was blood everywhere, but most conspicuously on the headboard of Jeffrey and Colette's bed, where someone had spelled out the word PIG in red, vertical, capital letters. On seeing this, the military investigators all had the same thought. PIG is what had been written in blood on Sharon Tate's front door six months earlier, after the Manson family had slaughtered Tate and her house guests on Cielo Drive in Los Angeles. 
Had the Manson family come to North Carolina? The crime scene was so mind-bendingly brutal. Butchered children, blood on the walls, anything seemed possible. And, of course, McDonald's own account, which he had hinted at with his cryptic acid is groovy references, and would shortly elaborate at length, lent immediate credence to the idea that Manson acolytes, if not Manson himself, were responsible for this satanic assault. Rather than paraphrasing that account, I think it best to allow McDonald to speak for himself, as he did to military investigators. Because in determining whether or not he was telling the truth, as every researcher of this case knows, one wants to put every conceivably relevant detail up on the board. And McDonald's choice of words, his affect, his certainties and doubts, have struck seemingly everyone who has examined them as telling. The problem, of course, is that they tell different things to different people. Transcription of interview of Captain Jeffrey R. McDonald, April 6, 1970, at CID office, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Persons present, Captain Jeffrey McDonald, CW3J Grebner, Chief CID, W01 Robert B. Shaw, SP7 William F. Ivory, Criminal Investigations. Let's see. Monday night, my wife went to bed, and I was reading. And I went to bed about somewhere around 2 o'clock. I really don't know. I was reading on the couch, and my little girl, Christy, had gone into bed with my wife. And I went in to go to bed, and the bed was wet. She had wet the bed on my side, so I brought her in her own room. I don't remember if I changed her or not. Gave her a bottle and went out to the couch, because my bed was wet. And I went to sleep on the couch. And the next thing I know, I heard some screaming. At least my wife. But I thought I heard Kimmy, my older daughter, screaming also. And I sat up, the kitchen light was on, and I saw some people at the foot of the bed. So I don't know if I really said anything or I was getting ready to say something. This happened real fast. You know, when you talk about it, it sounds like it took forever, but it didn't take forever. And so I sat up, and at first I thought it was... I just could see three people. And I don't know if I, if I heard the girl first or I think I saw her first. I think two of the men separated sort of at the end of my couch. And I keep... All I saw was some people, really. And this guy started walking down between the coffee table and the couch. And he raised something over his head and just sort of then, sort of altogether, I just got a glimpse of this girl with a kind of light on her face. I don't know if it was a flashlight or a candle, but it looked to me like she was holding something. And I just remember that my instinctive thought was that she's holding a candle. What the hell is she holding a candle for? But she said, before I was hit the first time, kill the pigs. Acid's groovy. Now that's all. That's all I think I heard before I was hit the first time. And the guy hit me in the head, so I was knocked back at the end of the couch, and then I started struggling to get up, and I could hear it all then. Now I could, maybe it's really, you know, I don't know if I was repeating to myself what she just said, or if I kept hearing it, but I kept, I heard, you know, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. And I started to struggle up, and I noticed three men now. And I think the girl was kind of behind them, either on the stairs or at the foot of the couch behind them. 
And the guy on my left was a colored man and he hit me again. But at the same time, you know, I was kind of struggling. And these two men, I thought, were punching me at the same time. Then I, I remember thinking to myself that, see, I work out with the boxing club sometimes. I was then, and I kept, geez, that guy throws a hell of a punch because he punched me in the chest. And I got this terrible pain in my chest. And so I was struggling, and I got hit on the shoulder or the side of the head again. And so I turned, and I, and I grabbed this guy's whatever it was. I thought it was a baseball bat at the time, and I had, I was holding it. I was kind of working up it to hold on to it. Meanwhile, both these guys were kind of hitting me, and all this time I was hearing screams. That's what I can't figure out, so let's see. I was holding, so I, I saw the, and all I got a glimpse was, was some stripes. I told you, I think they were E6 stripes. There was one bottom rocker, and it was an army jacket, and that man was a colored man, and the two men, other men, were white. And I didn't really notice too much about them, and so I kind of struggled, and I was kind of off balance because I was still halfway on the couch and halfway off, and I was holding on to this thing, and I kept getting this pain either in, you know, like sort of in my stomach, and it kept hitting me in the chest. And so I let go of the club, and I was grappling with him, and I was holding his hand in my hand, and I saw, you know, a blade. I didn't know what it was. I just saw something that looked like a blade at the time. And so then I concentrated on him. We were kind of struggling in the hallway right there at the end of the couch. And then really the next distinctive thing, I thought that, I thought that I noticed that I saw some legs, you know, that not covered. Like I saw the tops of some boots and I thought I saw knees as I was falling. But it wasn't what was in the papers that I saw white boots. I never saw white muddy boots. I saw saw some knees at the top of the boots, and I told, I think, the investigators. I thought they were brown, as a matter of fact. And the next thing I remember, though, was lying on the hallway floor, and I was freezing cold, and it was very quiet, and my teeth were chattering, and I went down and to the bedroom, and I had this... I was dizzy, you know? I wasn't really real alert, and I... My wife was lying on the, the floor next to the bed and there were there was a knife in her upper chest so I took that out and I tried to give her artificial respiration but the air was coming out of her chest so I went and checked the kids and just a minute and they were uh, had a lot of uh, There was a lot of blood around. So I went back into the bedroom and I, uh, this time I was finding it real hard to breathe and I was dizzy. So I picked up the phone and I told this asshole operator that it was, my name was Captain McDonald and I was at 544 Castle Drive and I needed the MPs and a doctor and an ambulance. And she said, is this on post or off post? Something like that. And I started yelling at her. I said, finally, I told her it was on post and she said well you'll have to call the MPs so I dropped the phone and I went back and I checked my wife again and now I was I don't know 
I assume I was hoping I hadn't seen what I had seen or I'd or I was starting to think more like a doctor. So I went back and I checked for pulses. You know, carotid pulses and stuff and I there was no pulse on my wife and I was I felt I was getting sick to my stomach and I was short of breath and I was dizzy and my teeth were chattering because I was cold. And so I didn't know if I was going I assumed I was going into shock because I was cold. That's one of the symptoms of shock. You start getting chills. So I got down on all fours and I was breathing for a while. Then I realized that I had talked to the operator and nothing really had happened with her. But in any case, when I got back to check my wife and then went to check the kids, a couple times I had to, thinking that I was going into shock and not being able to breathe. Now, now I, you know, when I look back, of course, it's merely a symptom, that shortness of breath. It isn't, you weren't really that bad, but that's what happens when you get a pneumothorax. You think you can't breathe. And I had to get down on my hands and knees and breathe for a while. And then I went in and checked the kids and checked their pulses and stuff. And I don't know if it was the first time I checked them or the second time I checked them, to tell you the truth, but I had, you know, blood on my hands. I had little cuts in here, and my head hurt. So when I reached up to feel my head, you know, my hands were bloody, and so I, I think it was the second circuit, because it, by that time, I was, I was thinking better, I thought, and I went into that, I went into the bathroom right there, and looked into the mirror, and didn't, Nothing looked wrong. I mean, there wasn't really even a cut or anything. So I, then I went out in the hall. I couldn't breathe, so I was on my hands and knees in the hall, and I, and it kept hitting me that really nothing had been solved when I called the operator. And so I went in, and that was in the, you know, the middle of the hallway there, and I went the other way. I went into the kitchen and picked up the phone, and the operator was on the line. My other phone had never been hung up. And she was still on the line. She said, is this Captain McDonald? And I said, yes, it is. And she said, just a minute. And there was some dial tones and stuff. And then the sergeant came on. He said, can I help you? So I told him that I needed a doctor and an ambulance and that some people had been stabbed and that I thought I was going to die. And he said, they'll be right there. So I left the phone. And I remember going back to look again. And the next thing I knew, an MP was giving me mouth-to-mouth respiration next to next to my wife. Now I remember I saw, I don't know if it was for the first or second trip in the bedroom to see my wife, but I saw the back door was open, but that's immaterial, I guess. That's it. That's it. Were the gaps in McDonald's memory evidence of his deceit, or were they telltale signs of trauma 
which MacDonald would no doubt have suffered if his account was accurate. Was the halting way in which MacDonald related his story a giveaway that he was conjuring on the fly, sidestepping self-contradictions like so many landmines? Or was that just how an honest person, one determined to recall every relevant detail, would speak? If his story sounded polished, after all, wouldn't it also have sounded scripted? And what about his tone? Was he too nonchalant? He should have been sobbing when reliving these events, if they happened like he said they did. But then, MacDonald had all his life striven for a kind of masculine virtue, which called for doing one's duty even in the most trying circumstances. From his, perhaps quaint, perspective, it would have been unbecoming to do anything other than answer the investigator's questions in as honest and dignified a manner as possible. These questions are not easily answered. Indeed, if there is one lesson the McDonald case teaches, it is this. In the absence of dispositive proof, determining whether a person is telling the truth is difficult, and is made all the more so by the perpetual temptation to disregard that hard fact. Evidence, in the end, is our only hope. But few people find that truth palatable, and it is an especially bitter one to swallow when our only hope, the evidence, resists scrutiny, confounds our queries, responds with silence. Indulge me in a brief moment of autobiography. I first learned of this case as a boy. In November 1984, when I was nine years old, NBC aired Fatal Vision, a two-part miniseries about the McDonald murders. It was that year's most popular miniseries, and it attracted a fair deal of attention in the press. At some point, I caught a glimpse of an advertisement for Fatal Vision. As I recall it now, the ad displayed the silhouette of a man standing in the doorway of a child's twilight bedroom, his long shadow cast across the length of the room, and perhaps over the bed, where the child was sleeping. Knowing nothing of the images referent, I still detected its ominous connotations, and therefore asked my mother what it was about. A year or so earlier, someone had, for some reason, left me in front of a television for 90 minutes when another TV movie, Helter Skelter, was airing. That was my introduction to Charles Manson. It scarred me for life, but also gave me the background understanding necessary to appreciate my mother's response when I asked her about the Fatal Vision ad. She told me that Fatal Vision was the true story of Jeffrey McDonald, doctor, Green Beret, and family man, who one night murdered his own wife and kids, and then staged the crime scene to make it appear as if a gang of Manson-like hippies had done it. To make his story more believable, she told me, McDonald had wounded and even gone so far as to stab himself. But, as a surgeon, he'd known just where to inflict the wounds so as to ensure they weren't fatal. Among the clues that alerted army investigators to McDonald's ruse, the story continued, was the presence in his home of a copy of Esquire magazine, which contained an article about the Manson crimes, the details of which were suspiciously echoed in McDonald's story. I was nine. She was my mom. So that was that. I had, so far as I was concerned, learned a bit of history. Jeffrey McDonald was the guy who murdered his family and then tried to make it look like Charles Manson had done it. Twenty-eight years later, I was conducting research for my first book, 
a history of crime, violence, and revolution in 1930s Palestine, when I happened to hear a familiar voice on the radio. It was the esteemed documentarian Errol Morris, who had directed The Thin Blue Line, The Fog of War, and many other excellent films. I identified with Morris as a fellow fact fetishist, a guy who was driven, somewhat pathologically, to get the details of a story right, to get to the bottom of things. For that reason, Morris's interview on this occasion jarred me. He had a new book out, A Wilderness of Error, which, it became clear upon listening, contended that Jeffrey MacDonald was, in fact, innocent. That, in turn, meant that MacDonald's story of hippie intruders was true, and that, in turn, was obviously false. How could Errol Morris, of all people, have gotten this, of all cases, wrong? On reflection, of course, I came to appreciate that Morris had taken the time to research and write a book on the McDonald case, whereas the source of my deep convictions on the matter was my memory of what my mother had told me about it when I was nine. How many of our most cherished beliefs have this quality, I wondered. I resolved to pick up a wilderness of error and to give Morris a shot at persuading me. In the meantime, I started reading up on the case. But I'd barely gotten started when I hit a snag. Morris simply couldn't be right. There was a detail in MacDonald's story that all but screamed fraud. It was the chant MacDonald had placed on the lips of his floppy hat-wearing, candle-holding, female attacker. Acid is groovy. Kill the pigs, she'd supposedly repeated while MacDonald's other male attackers were pummeling him. Acid is groovy, kill the pigs is not something actual hippies say. It's a cliché. It's what a type A alpha male imagines hippies would say. This conviction led me to declare with confidence that Errol Morris, for all his investigative acumen, had been hoodwinked by a charismatic con man. I have since come to appreciate that this intuition, that MacDonald's story is simply too implausible to be true, may be the very heart of the case. Perhaps not everything, but a great deal hangs on whether or not the implausibility claim holds water, and the only way to make that determination is to do some proper history. Generally speaking, people are convinced that Jeffrey MacDonald is guilty not because he is, although he may, in fact, be, but because they believe Joe McGuinness's story about MacDonald as told in the book Fatal Vision. But Fatal Vision, as we will see, is not a reliable history of the case. And while a number of other books and films have been made about the MacDonald murders, all of them helpful, we will seek in this season to examine the murders as a historical event, bringing the criteria of historical authenticity to bear upon the available evidence. No one has done this. Beginning next week, in episode two, we will. That's next time on The Looking Glass.